Morning, everybody. Strange to not be able to hear that back. Uh, yeah, here we go. Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you have spoken. We pray now that you would reveal to us the beauty of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so the day is November the 3rd, 1918. Imagine that it's November the 3rd, 1918. The city is right here in Washington, D.C. A matter of fact, just a, a couple dozen blocks from where I'm standing right now, uh, 15th Street. 15th Street Presbyterian Church, and the pastor at the time, Francis Grimke, is walking into the pulpit. It's a significant moment for this church. The city, the nation, and the world at large had been quarantined at this time due to the Spanish, uh, Spanish influenza. And so just as today, back then, dance halls and bars and movie theaters and churches, they didn't meet for months. And finally, that Spanish flu and the scare of it has gone. The day that we now, all of us, wait upon had finally come to them in this time. The church had finally been able to gather. They were able to come together to hear the word, to, to sing the word, to take the Lord's Supper together. And Pastor Francis Grimke, again, stands up to preach. And what he preached that morning was eight reflections on what uh, the Spanish flu had taught them. He gave those eight, and one of the eight was, he said how easily, he commented how easily it was for large portions of the, of the population to be wiped out in spite of the skill of science. He commented on that. He also uh, commented on how in the era of Jim Crow, he commented on how white supremacy was exposed because the Spanish flu did not discriminate in any way, shape, or form. But then he came to the seventh reflection that I think is appropriate for us in this time as we are in this stage. And here's what he said that morning. He said, there's another thing connected with this epidemic that is also worthy of note. While it lasted, he kept the thought of death and of eternity constantly before the people. As the papers came out day after day, among the first things that everyone looked for or asked about was the number of deaths. And so the thought of death was never allowed to stay very long out of the consciousness of the living. And with the thought of death also came the great thought of eternity. They are not pleasant things to think about, and so we avoid thinking of them as much as possible. It is only when we are forced to that we give them any consideration, and even then only for a moment, he said. During the weeks of this epidemic, he said, in the long list of deaths and the large number of new man-made graves, God has been reminding us of this account which we must soon render up. He has been projecting before us in a way to startle us the thought of eternity. It's a fitting observation for us as we are mired in the throes of this pandemic now. I too, I don't know about you, I, my guess is a lot of you are like me. One of the first things I do in the morning is I too see How's it going? How many people have died and the like? And these things force me, they force us to think about, just as Grimke says, death and eternity. Indeed, I do believe, I agree with him. I think God is reminding us at the very least that we will soon render an account. Our confidence in mankind to control us uh, and keep us safe is being exposed as a ruse. It's a lie. And so what better question to pose and then answer than the one that the lawyer is asking in this passage this morning? Namely, how can a man, how can we inherit eternal life? What a great question for this time. 
In many ways, this is the question that Jesus has been answering for his ministry. Uh, he's been on, in his public ministry up until this point for about two years. He's got about one more year before he goes to the cross. Uh, we know as we've been walking through Luke, we know that he was born of a virgin uh, and celebrated by the angels in that birth. God the Father said that this was his beloved son. Jesus had been going about healing, casting out demons, and teaching, most importantly, about the kingdom of God. And so all those other signs, uh, all those other uh, healings and things of the like, they were meant to illustrate the main thing of the kingdom of God, namely that the kingdom was breaking in with the king coming in. Those, th those uh, healings and the like were meant to be signs, illustrations of what the kingdom is, namely that it is void of darkness, void of sin, death, demons, and the like, and present with the love of God. That's what it was meant to do. Jesus has authority as the king of the kingdom. And last week we saw that it was blessed are those uh, who see this king as the king, as the Messiah, as the king of, of the kingdom, and treasure him. And that then brings us then to the question, again, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll take a look at verse 25 first off there. Notice the context. Verse 25, lawyers stood, stood up in order to put him to the test, put Jesus to the test. So in other words, guys, this was a, this was a prosecuting attorney who was putting his witness up on the docket to be questioned. This is not a question of genuine interest as much as it is an attempt to trap Jesus. Uh, we see back in chapter 7, verse 30, we remember that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And so as a class, these Pharisees, these lawyers, as a class, these guys, they just don't like Jesus because he's undercutting their authority in society at the time. And so they're looking for ways to take Jesus down. Lawyers are, Pharisees are. But regardless, Jesus doesn't dismiss the lawyers' questions. You know, he, he, he did, Jesus did as he often did. He answered a question with a question. What is written in the law, Jesus says. How, how do you read it? Two quick observations about that. First off, notice Jesus doesn't dismiss the law or the Bible as the way to answer that question. Notice that first off. Instructive. Jesus' immediate appeal is to the Bible to answer the question. But second, notice Jesus answers with a how question. How do you read it? So it's not enough just to read the Bible to answer these questions. We've got to be paying attention as to how we read it. But regardless, uh, the lawyer responds with the great two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And there he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, the great Shema. And then the lawyer says, and yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And there the lawyer is quoting Leviticus 19, 18. Those are two passages from the Old Testament. Jesus is pleased with the answer. He says, you have uh, answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And that little phrase there, do this and you will live, that's also a frequently quoted portion of Scripture. Here's the thing at this point that should have happened. The lawyer should have been leveled at that thought. Do this. He should have been leveled. Love God with everything you have. Love neighbor as yourself. The lawyer should have been leveled, should have been flattened. He should have said in some ways, but I can't do that. That should have been the response. He should have said, God, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. That's how we should have responded. That's how the lawyer should have responded. But look at how he responds and said. Take a look at verse 29. This is so important. Circle this in your Bibles. Underline it. Note the context. Verse 29. But he, he keeps going. The lawyer's like, okay, yeah, great. But he, desiring to justify himself. So underline that. Circle that. That's the context of what Jesus says next. 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? So we've, we've already noted that he had a bad motive to begin with. He's trying to test him. But now we see that his motive gets even more revealed. It gets even more seen as going from bad to worse. So instead of coming to the end of himself, pleading for mercy, the lawyer does the exact opposite. He assumes that it is within his own industry to measure up to those two great commands. He assumes that he can sort of pull this off, that he desires to justify himself through his actions. That is, he desires to know who he needs to love in order to justify or bring innocence, righteousness upon himself. And that, friends, is the occasion of one of Jesus' most famous parables. That's the occasion. That's the context. That is so important to understand. That's a critical uh, portion of context that we have to see in order to understand what the Good Samaritan is all about. So the question Jesus is answering with the story of the Good Samaritan is primarily about justification, not sanctification. So when it comes to the question of inheriting eternal life, we know that justification is a momentary declaration by God of one's righteousness. Sanctification is the process of working out that righteousness. So the order is important, and the terms, the separation of terms is important. And so as Christians, justification is our position, uh, and sanctification is our practice. Justification is the root. Sanctification is the fruit of the root. I could give you tons of Bible verses to kind of explain that to you. I'm going to give you one. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Write that down. Go read it later. Here's what it says. Again, this is illustrating the differences between justification and sanctification, how justification comes first, sanctification follows. He says, Paul says, for by grace, grace means unmerited favor, for by grace you have been saved. He's writing to the church. These are Christians. By grace you have been saved. You have been saved. How? Through faith. There's the justification. And this, this justification this salvation, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Just to be clear, not a result of works. That is to say, Paul's saying, not a result of sanctification, so that no one may boast. And now here, verse 10, now comes the sanctification. For or because we who are in Christ, we who are saved, we who are justified, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God saved his people, and because he did, they are then empowered to do the kinds of works that save them, the merciful, gracious works that illustrate the fact that they've already been saved. So in other words, the good works are revealing, not earning, revealing their justification. And so here, though, the lawyer is asking a question then, again, about justification, how one comes to inherit eternal life, how one gets saved. And he's going to, uh, he's not, Jesus is not talking about sanctification. And he's doing so, the lawyer is doing this, he's answer, asking these questions with the intent of trying to justify himself, which the Bible says you can't do. So this guy just doesn't get it. And so, proving once again, this guy doesn't get it, Jesus then turns the knife on the lawyer by giving him this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's now take a look at that parable. 
So this Jerusalem to Jericho road was the equivalent of a kind of downtown back alley at 2 a.m. Everybody knew that. This road, everybody at the time knew, bad place to be. And so yet again, guy gets beat up, robbers come, beat him down, off he goes. He's lying down, they strip him, they take his stuff, and they leave him, leave him half dead. And there he is on the side of the road, dying, when, verse 31, Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. All right, so we're meant to feel like, all right, this is good news. Two reasons. One, somebody's coming. They're going to help this guy. But two, it's not just anybody that's going to help him. It's a priest. And if there's anybody that knows the Bible that we ought to be loving neighbor, it's this guy. Right, so we've got all this hope. And yet what happens? Jesus says the priest walks on the other side. Now, Jesus is intentionally using this language. He's trying to, in other words, the priest is not only walking by, he's trying to get as far away from this dude as he can. Well, that's disappointing. We're meant to feel that disappointment. But good news, take a look at verse 32. A Levite comes along the road. All right, so this is good news. Again, not just that someone comes, but now it's a Levite. A Levite was, uh, a Levite would be the tribe from which the priest came. So not all priests were Levites, but all Levites were priests, or sorry, not all priests, not all Levites were priests, but, not, but all priests were Levites. That was the tribe of whom all the priests came from. And so if anybody was gonna know the law, if it wasn't the priest, it should have been these guys because they were servants to the priests. So they would be the kind of second class of people you, we would think would know to love neighbor. And yet what happens when the Levite shows up? He too walks by on the other side of the road. Same thing, trying to get away from this guy. Not only does he pass by, pass by on the other side of the road. Disappointment yet again. And so I'm sure the lawyer, like all of us, are a little perplexed in the story at this point. The two people that you'd expect to help the dying man didn't. And not only did they not, they went by as far as they could to try to get around this guy. Cue the third guy. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. All right, now guys, just try to put yourself in that environment. The second they would have heard that word, a Samaritan came by. The Jews at that point would have had sort of scoured faces. The Jews as a lot hated the Samaritans, couldn't stand them. They were a group of people that lived to the east of the Jews. In fact, uh, Jesus, when he was being derided in John 8, 48, when they were trying to conjure up, what's the worst thing we can call Jesus? In John 8, 48, they say that he's a Samaritan with a demon. So like, they just cannot stand, the Jews cannot stand Samaritans. And so to the great surprise of the lawyer and all the Jews listening and eventually us, what we learn in this passage is that the protagonist or the hero of the story is not a priest and he's not a Levite, but a Samaritan. And what happens? When he saw him, when the Samaritan sees the dying man, when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him. Verse 33 and 34 are meant to be the opposite of the other two. The, the other guys are opposite. They're walking on the opposite side. And yet here comes the Samaritan. He goes to him, to him, to him. And what does he do? What does the Samaritan do? He binds up his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. And then he got on, he took that guy, put him on his own animal, and he takes him down to the local holiday inn. And he checks him in there and he stays with him for a night, wakes up the next day and gives him two denarii. A denarii, one denarii would be like a day's wage. So for instance, if you make $50,000 a year, the equivalent here would be like giving this guy, giving the innkeeper 
five, six hundred bucks. And says, listen, you take care of him and anything else he needs, when I come back, you pay for it, I'll pay you back. And Jesus asked the question, which of these three guys proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In other words, Jesus says, which of these three were neighborly? It's an obvious question, right? The lawyer responds without even being able to name the Samaritan. Did you catch that? I can imagine, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking the guy's like the one that showed him mercy. I can't say Samaritan because I don't like Samaritan. The one that showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, did you notice Jesus flipped the question on the lawyer? Did you catch that? The lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love God with everything. Love neighbor himself. And the lawyer's like, designed to justify himself. Well, uh, who's my neighbor? And Jesus flipped the question and said, whose neighbor are you? He moved from the lawyer's question of evaluating who he must love to justify himself to, Jesus did, to ask him, who are you loving? And of course, the example Jesus gives was someone in need. In other words, he's asking, are you not only just helping people, but are you helping those in need? Or, lawyer, or the rest of us, are you walking on the other side of the road? The go and do likewise was meant to illustrate the answer. Namely, that if you're not being motivated to be more neighborly, especially to the needy, then you do not understand justification. If you have been justified, declared righteous by God because you called out for mercy, because you recognize, I can't love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. I can't, I can't do that perfectly. I can't even do it mostly. And you called out to God, God showed me mercy that I might. And God gave you mercy. And then secondly, you said, God, I, I can't love neighbor as myself. I, I, I don't even do that most of the time. God, help me, give me mercy that I might. And God showed you mercy. If God showed you mercy, if you pleaded for mercy to live out those two commands, then you would then write, then show the kind of mercy that God showed to you. Your being merciful would illustrate that you had already received mercy from God. Whereas on the other side, if you're more focused on who you need to show mercy to, you show that you don't understand the mercy of God. You don't show that you don't understand the justification of God, the righteousness of God, the need to call up for him for mercy. In other words, you're like the priest and the Levite. You walk on the other side of the needy. You reveal that you're interested in manufacturing mercy for yourself instead of revealing mercy from God in you to others. Or to put it in a phrase, those who have received mercy from God are merciful. Those who have not received mercy are merciless. One walks on the other side, the other walks towards those in need. And that brings us to the application of the question of the passage. What do we do here? Like what, 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 is, what is our response? How does one inherit eternal life? Is there a more important question? Well, Jesus answers with a, with, in, a, in such a way that is crystal clear, right? It's crystal. Love God with everything. Love neighbor just as you would love yourself. So here's my question for you. How's that going? 
How's it going at loving God with everything? How's it going at lo as loving neighbor as self? How's that going? See, if you're anything like me, you're aware that your love for God is more often cold than it is hot. And when it's hot, it's too often too hot for things that are over and above God. And when it, becomes, when it comes to evaluating love for neighbor, maybe you're like me too in that you realize that you often love yourself a lot more than you're looking to love your neighbor. I'll give you one example of this that happened in my life just this past week. Still not getting these new norms uh, of social distancing. Uh, I ran into my apartment on Wednesday. It was my wife's birthday, and so I ran in there. I was late getting home, and I ran in. The, the elevator door was closing, and I ran inside of it, and there was an elderly woman at the corner of the elevator, inside the elevator. And I said, is this elevator going up? And she said, yes, it is. I said, okay, great. And then she said, I'll get off. And she walked off the elevator. And my first thought was, oh, come on. That was my first thought. My first thought, in other words, was not neighbor love. I wasn't thinking about the need to protect her. I was thinking about my need to get home. And so, friends, if the standard of Jesus is loving God with all and loving neighbor as self, then I think we would all agree that we all fail. We all come up short. Every single one of us. And if it's true that we all fail, no matter how good our intentions are, if it's true that we all fail and we're unable to even do this perfectly or even mostly, then we must come to the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Namely, that we need mercy from God. Friends, the law was never meant to be a ladder to climb our way up to righteousness. No, the law was always meant to be the Harvard business professor teaching macroeconomics to third graders. Right? The, the law was meant to reveal the standard, yes, of God. But in revealing that standard, it was meant to instruct us on how far we fall short and how far we have to go so that we would then call to God for mercy. In other words, if you were a third grader being taught macroeconomics by a Harvard professor, at some point, even in your third grade mind, you would go, I don't understand this. Stop. Give me mercy. Just give me an A on the test. <laughs> That's the point of the law. Apparently, though, while the lawyer, he had the right statement of beliefs, he never saw his need for mercy. He figured he could do it himself. And so I wonder, do you? Do you believe that you can have the sort of right statement of beliefs, but in some way you can perform your righteousness if you sort of do enough good stuff like the lawyer? Are you like him? Do you see your need for mercy from God in order to inherit eternal life? If you've never, if you've heard this passage preached in the past, Good Samaritan, if you've heard this preached in the past, like to say, have the right statement of beliefs and then go be neighborly. And if you do it good enough, God will save you. 
In other words, if you've understood that your justification, your innocence, your righteousness before God was in part dependent upon you, if you understood that you understood that you needed to be smart enough to figure out the right statement of beliefs, and secondly, you needed to be strong enough to then perform those beliefs, if that's you, well then, friend, let me introduce to you the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. You and I, in this story, were never meant to be the hero of this story. Never. That's true of every passage in the Bible. We were never meant, we are not, in the David and Goliath, we're not David, we're Goliath. Every hero of every story was always meant to point to Christ. Jesus is the hero. You and I are not supposed to understand ourselves to be the hero. So in this story, in the Good Samaritan, listen, we are every single person, every group in this story. We are every single one except the Good Samaritan. Think about it. Aren't we like the lawyer? Maybe having the right statement of beliefs, but then spending so much our time and energy trying to justify ourselves? Aren't we just like him? Aren't we just like those robbers? That in our words or in our actions, our sinful motives of the heart, we hurt people. Aren't we just like the priest and the Levite who see others in need, but because of our self-righteousness, we walk on the other side? Aren't we like that dying and bleeding man? Only, we do not suffer unjustly. We suffer justly because of our disordered loves. And Jesus is the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan. He is the good Samaritan. When everyone else walked on the other side, he chose in compassion to come near. He chose to come near. Everybody else walks aside. He, the good Samaritan, Jesus, comes near. Near. He, Jesus, bound up our sinful wounds on the cross. Instead of oil and wine, he poured his perfect blood on us and took care of us by taking care of our sin, which is the root of all of the evil, the unrighteousness. And Jesus paid not two days' wages. He paid the eternal worth of his own righteousness, and he transferred by grace to us that believe. And upon his resurrection... He conquered sin and death, purchasing for us not a room and an inn, but a home with him in heaven. He is the good Samaritan. He is the only one who went and did likewise. He was and is the good neighbor when he moved into this broken world so that he might fix it because he was the only one that was able. And so, friend, the gospel is that we stand to pay a debt that no amount of religion or good intentions could ever pay. And by grace, Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay for most of it so that you and I could try to, try to fix up the rest of the debt. No. He paid all of it because he knew that we needed mercy. Our place is to learn the lesson of the lawyer, the, the lesson that apparently he never learned. Our place is to agree that we fall short. Agree that God is right to have the standard of perfect love for God and neighbor. 
But no matter how hard we try, we have to agree that we can't perform it perfectly or even mostly. Our place is to then repent of how we fall short of that sin. Repent of that sin to God and, and plead the mercy of the good Samaritan to save us. Plead the person and the work of Christ, not ourselves, him. Plead for grace to save you. And when we do, we stand justified, cleansed, healed, made holy in Christ Jesus. And so here's a critical question for you, friend, as you're watching this. If before, don't lose sight of if you're, if, you're, if you're kind of getting distracted, look back in for a second. If before I began preaching this sermon, you would have understood that the grounds or the basis of your justification, your righteousness before God, if you would have understood before the sermon that it was first your proper statement of beliefs and second, your ability to then perform your salvation, if you understood you needed to believe all the right stuff and in addition to that, perform it in order to gain that righteousness and now your understanding that you have to throw everything that you have all onto Jesus, well then friend, you just understood the gospel for the very first time. That's huge. It's huge. The Bible says, Jesus teaches himself that when one sinner repents, angels sing. They sing now. Because of what God has done in you. When you're pleading for grace, going, God, I can't do this. I need you to save all of me. I can't do it. I trust Jesus. And so if that's you, friend, listen, call the person that invited you into this live stream and tell them that. Don't stay alone there in your own room just sort of working it out. First pray. I should mention that. First pray. Talk to God. Thank him for salvation. Plead for him for salvation, for mercy to save you from all of your sin. And then secondly, rejoice by going and talking to the person that invited you into this. And if you don't have anybody to call, call me. My, I, there, my information is just somewhere on this website, you know, up here, over there, somewhere. Talk to somebody about it. This is such good news. Jesus said he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And for you, beloved, that have already thrown yourself on Jesus, for all of you that understood this gospel, that treasure this gospel, even as I was preaching it, you were like, yes and amen. I can't do this. I need Jesus to do all of it. If that describes you, well, first, you should rejoice, too. Rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus came near to you. That Jesus showed you individually compassion. We talked about that last week, right? Your names are written in the book of heaven. He showed your names. He, he brought compassion to you individually. Rejoice that he overcame your sin and death. Rejoice that soon and very soon, you're going to get to see him. And second, second, now we're ready for the implication, right? Now we're ready for it. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Second, go and do likewise. As an implication of your justification. As a manifestation of your salvation. Be then merciful as your heavenly father was merciful to you in sending you the good Samaritan, your big brother Jesus. Do so in the pattern of Jesus. Do so in the power of Jesus for the pleasure of Jesus. Go and love your neighbor. 
Not as a way to earn your salvation, but as a way to show it. What a time to live to be doing this. What a time to be living. When suffering and death are on the minds of everyone, as Grimke said a century ago, you, friend, you that are in Christ, you know the one that stared death in the face and said, it is finished. You know him, and you know the way to come to him. So speak it to others, and then be merciful to them, those people. They're in need. Don't waste this pandemic. For the glory of Christ and the good of your neighbor, speak and serve in the mercy of God. Now, guys, listen to me. I'm speaking especially to my Restoration Church members. Now's not the time to be complaining about all your inconveniences. Not the time. Not the time. We all have them. Now's the time to be thankful to God for his salvation, for his mercy, and secondly, be trying to show ways to love others in that mercy. Simple enough is this social distancing, keep your distance from others. But also look for ways, be creative in ways in which you can serve. That's where, what Joey mentioned earlier, look down below this uh, little stream here below. There's all kinds of things that we as a church think it's good for you to support and try to be part of. Take a look at that and just figure out ways that you can love others and be merciful to others. Think about ways you can love your neighbor. But don't use this time, beloved, to walk on the other side of the road while other people are suffering and scared and fearful. Be the love in the hands and feet of Christ. This is what we do because it's who we are in Christ. And if you're struggling to get there, to do this, to love neighbor, if you're struggling to get there, cue the last story. It's as though Luke anticipated an overreaction of some to their justification by his putting this story next. I think it's just really neat how this story comes after the one before it. Jesus, going around doing his thing, meets a couple gals, Mary and Martha. These two gals would be close companions of Jesus. Uh, you may have heard about Mary and Martha's brother, a guy by the name of Lazarus, who died. And Martha, actually, as he was dying, Martha goes and uh, asks Jesus. She gets word to Jesus so that he'll come and heal her brother, Lazarus, that's dying. And you, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story in John 11. Jesus delays the story to get there. And when, by the time Jesus does show up, Lazarus is dead. And here's Martha again telling Jesus what he needs to do. She tells him, Jesus, had you been sooner, here sooner, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Of course, we know Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead. So Martha is an interesting gal, isn't she? She is very eager and very comfortable to tell Jesus what he needs to be doing. Kind of reminds me of my Nana. My Nana used to be that same way. She was very comfortable with telling everybody what they needed to do. But here, right, Martha, she means well. She means well. I mean, after all, right, in this passage that you heard read, in this passage, this is an instance when Martha is busy with much serving. And she's serving Jesus, right? How much better does it get than that, right? But listen, don't lose sight of this. The problem here, though, is not in her service. It's in her much service that has led her to the point of being distracted, that has led her to the point of being anxious and troubled about many things. Did you catch that little math formula right there? For Martha, it's this much service that led to her being distracted, which led to her being anxious and troubled about many things. In particular, the one that Jesus wants to highlight is her distraction 
about choosing or being led away from the one thing that was necessary. And I wonder how many of you are like Martha. How many of us are like Martha, constantly moving from one thing to the next? Constantly moving around, even when you aren't moving. You're thinking about moving on to the next task to be accomplished. In your mind, all these things are mounting up that you need to do. You get anxious, you get troubled. I wonder if you knew that anxiety disorders are the most common mental disorder in the United States of America. According to one source, 18% or 40 million Americans have an anxiety disorder. In 2018, this same source reported uh, rates were spiking, and that was before the coronavirus. And what's odd about all of this anxiety that's lifting is the fact that in the past 10 years, Americans have been able to take more and more control of their lives. There are more customizable options to the public now than ever before, and we have more expendable income than we've ever had, which, of course, reveals the problem, doesn't it? The more control we think we have, the more we are aware of the control that we don't have leading us to then being anxious and troubled about many things, not the least of which is this coronavirus. And so what's the answer? What's the answer? How do, how, how, how do we get out of this? How do we get undistracted? How do we get settled? How do we get peace and not anxiety? What's the answer? Well, Jesus shows us right there. We have to get undistracted by doing the one thing that is necessary. That's got to be the priority. By being like Mary and sitting at the feet of Jesus. By daily, regularly, momentarily, listening, learning, loving Jesus. Being oriented by his life, being oriented by his love, being tuned into his kingdom, not ours so much. Martha was doing a good thing, but her good thing became a bad thing when she got distracted from doing the one thing that was necessary, sitting at the feet of Christ. Now, I realize that for most of us listening to this, sitting at the feet of Jesus doesn't sound either very practical or very helpful. Right? When there are a hundred things to accomplish in a day's, day's time, slowing down to listen and learn from Jesus, it seems impractical. It doesn't seem to kind of do the stuff that we need to be doing, that we're anxious about. Therefore, it doesn't seem very helpful. My goodness, people are getting sick and dying. How does sitting at the feet of Jesus help? Well, the answer, friend, is exactly what we talked about last week, which Joey talked about weeks ago in Luke 9, 25. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits or loses his soul? In other words, what do you gain, friend? If you get the MBA, you get the director's position at the nonprofit, you provide tons of help to those in need, you get married, you've got kids, you raise them to be good kids, they, they're doing good stuff. What does it matter if you do all of this and yet you die and your soul is lost to an eternity apart from the comfort of Christ? What do you gain? Now, some of you might say, well, Nathan, I don't believe in an eternity apart from Christ. To which I would say, why not? Jesus does. He talks about hell more than anybody else. 
you might then say, well, okay, Nathan, that's fair, but I don't believe in Jesus like you believe in Jesus. I say, okay, that's fair. Tell me, is that because you've done as Mary has done? Is it because, are, are you rejecting the Jesus that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm teaching and preaching here? Is it because you've sat at the feet of Jesus, you've studied Jesus and his word and tried to understand him and then rejected him? Or is it because you never did the good portion? Is it because you didn't actually study Jesus? Actually take the time to read, to think, to understand, to surround yourself with other people that would do the same. See, friend, if you've never actually studied Jesus, never sat at the feet of Jesus to be oriented by him, calmed by them, oriented towards him, then, friend, that would be the first thing you need to do. That's the one thing that's necessary in order for you to then understand the truth about what happens to people when they die, which orients the rest of their life, which quiets those of us that trust him, their anxiety. And so, friend, if you would like to do that, if you'd like to sit at the feet of Jesus with some other folks to help you understand that, let us know. That's why we're here. That's why we set up for our church, we've set up the Zoom call to study the Psalms every single day from 8 to 8.30. Just to try to be oriented, to sit at the feet of Jesus every single day and be oriented by him amidst this crisis and then pray together. But if you don't want to do that with somebody else, listen, I'm sure you've got a Bible laying around. If you don't, let me know. We'll get one to you. But maybe just start by sitting at the feet of Jesus by reading about him, studying him. And so a good place to do that would be either start in Luke, as we're reading here, or just go to the book of John. Start there and study it. Sit at the feet of Jesus and have your calms, your fears quieted. But for the rest of us, we Christians, those of us that have thrown ourselves, all of ourselves upon all of Jesus for eternal life, for us, Friends, if you are so busy doing good things that you are distracted from the one thing that is necessary, it's possible you're not doing the good that you think you're doing. See, here's the, the silver lining of this coronavirus is just what Francis Grimke told us. It's sobering us to the reality of death and our subsequent appointment with God. And if that's not enough, a lot of us, though not all of us, I have learned, right? Those of you with small children, your life got way more complicated and more difficult. But for a lot of us, we've been given some additional time at home so that we can do as Mary has instructed us to do, as Jesus has instructed us to do, to sit at the feet of Jesus. We, some of us, have more time to meet with Jesus now before we meet with him then. But even if you don't have that time, it is still dependent that you do this. And so will you? Will you sit at the feet of Jesus? to listen to him, to learn from him, to love him? Will you do the one thing that's necessary? Will you create habits to do that? Will you do the one thing that is necessary? Will you do the one thing that will not be taken from you? Will you choose, as Mary did, will you choose the good portion and listen to Jesus in his word every day? Or, this is the other option, will you be like Martha, go on being distracted, anxious, and troubled? The choice is yours, friend. Choice is yours. What is it going to be? Well, if you chose the one thing that is necessary to sit at the feet of Jesus, let me tell you what's going to happen. Here's the first thing. When you sit at the feet of Jesus, you're going to find out really fast you and I are not the kings and queens of this world. That's good news. The second thing that you'll learn really quickly is that Jesus is the king. And as we just learned, he's a really good king. He's a good Samaritan that is powerful and able to heal. And when you orient yourself to him every day, you sit 
at his feet every day and are changed by him, quieted by him, then your souls will be quieted and then you'll be quickened to love others and not be anxious. I'll give you a personal example of this. For the last 20 plus years of my life, literally every single day that I can think of, there's probably been a day or two in between, every single day for the last 20 plus years of my life, I've spent time in the Word and prayer with Jesus. Every day. And secondly, virtually every single Sunday, including this one, kind of, I've been at a healthy church where I've heard the word preached and sang and read, these kinds of things. And thirdly, I've been in a community group for most every single week, save the, save the months we take breaks. I've been in a community group most every single week for the last 20 plus years. In other words, I've been around other people meaningfully that are loving me and listening to me and praying for me and rebuking me and admonishing me and strengthening and encouraging me. I've been doing that for the last 20 plus years, virtually every week, been in a community group. And... Fourthly, I happen to be married to a godly woman that helps me follow Jesus as well. She reminds me of Jesus. Simple question after that. What do you think all of this has done for me? What do you think it's done? How do you think it's affected me? See, friends, whatever grace that I have, whatever peace that I have, whatever love that I have, whatever joy that I have, it's because by the grace and the mercy of God, I've prioritized sitting at the feet of Jesus and being quieted by his love and his life. He quiets me and then he then quickens me towards life and love. He reminds me who the king is. He reminds me that he's over it. He convicts me of sin. He grants me forgiveness. I'm encouraged and I go out and love others. And soon enough, I'm gonna get to literally sit at his feet in heaven. Not because of anything I've done, but all because of what he's done in my life. All because he has chosen to justify me by his grace through the totality of his redemption in the cross and in the resurrection. Jesus is my peace. In Restoration Church, he's our peace. He's our peace. He's our joy, our life. And so go to him and prioritize him. Listen to him every single day and help others do the same. And again, if you're having trouble with that, you don't have that habit to do that, to sit still to, to listen to his word and to pray uh, and be oriented by him. Again, sign up, just hop on that Zoom call. For the members of the church, you should know how to get a hold of that. But if not, try to get somebody other. Call somebody up on the phone. Or thirdly, again, just make a resolve to yourself to do this. Find a way to get undistracted by sitting at the feet of Christ every single day. Choose the good portion and Christ will heal you and orient you towards the truth of his kingdom in these troubling days. Do this, friend, and you will live. Do it not, and you will remain anxious and troubled. And so if you need help about this or anything else, you let us know. We're here to help. We're here to serve you. These are sobering days, friends. Sobering days. So this passage is reminding us that we need to plead for mercy to the good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, to heal us, to forgive us, that we might inherit eternal life. And secondly, we need to then sit at his feet to be oriented by his love and then quickened to love others in the same kind of love. And so, beloved, go and do likewise this week in the pattern of Christ and the power of Christ and for the pleasure of Christ.
pleading with each other along the way to help. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are the lawyer. We are the robbers. Forgive us. We plead for mercy. And thank you, Jesus, that you choose to come near to those of us that believe. And heal us, forgive us, orient us. And God, help us to then sit at your feet. Listen, learn, love you so that we would be oriented towards the world. That we might love our neighbor as ourselves. We might love as you loved us. And soon and very soon may you return that we might have to no longer love you and sit at your feet by faith, but instead we might do it by sight. But until then, God, rid this world of this destructive disease. But most of all, bring in the fullness of your kingdom to believers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.